Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. That's the most awkward thing in the world, to stand down there and then come up here and stand up here and have to talk. And I don't know. I don't know why that was dis- 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 disconcerting for me. So I've got to get my head on straight as we begin here. Robbie and I just watched a movie um, uh, called uh, 13 Lives. Have you seen that movie yet? It's, it's actually streaming right now, but it's a dramatization of the rescue, uh, the cave rescue of 12 soccer players and their coach from a flooded cave in, in Thailand. And honestly, we watched this movie, and it's a movie, I mean, based on news events that I watched the news events unfold, but it's actually one of those stories that fit the, the truth is stranger than fiction motif. Because if someone just wrote that story as fiction, You'd be like, meh, yeah, I no way there's any, you know, all that good of an ending is going to happen out of something as terrible as that. But those of us who saw it when it really was happening, I can still remember that being in the news. And I remember how elated I was and how awesome it was, how that story concluded. It was amazing and glorious and almost an unbelievable ending to, to that. And that movie got me thinking a lot about the event we're going to be looking at today. And of course... My wife and my kids are rolling their eyes like, yeah, really? (laughs) Something got you thinking about the Bible, Rob? Huh? But uh, it did because of how incredible and amazing and really difficult to believe uh, because it's just so good. The, the events that we're going to be reading out to, uh, about today. We're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Luke today. If you've got a Bible in some form with you, either old school analog Bible or a Bible app, if you'd like to go to Luke 24, please. Last week, we finished up chapter 23. Chapter 23 was all about uh, Jesus' arrest and trial and execution and, and subsequent burial. And we considered all of those things uh, in that account and what it reveals about what God has been up to through Jesus. Last week, we read specifically about Jesus' burial, and we viewed it uh, with the, the idea of it being a planted seed uh, and thought about what would grow from this sacrifice Jesus made? What kind of life would, would burst forth from, from that? And we'll stay in that same vein today as we finally come to the big deal, the, the finale, you could say. Uh, we have a few Sundays left in this study, and over that time we're going to be considering essentially what is the, the core of our Christian hope, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. Interestingly enough, in all of the other recorded miracles that Jesus did in his ministry, there were witnesses to those miracles. Like people saw what happened and they shared that with others, even if it was just the recipient of it. You know, Jesus did a miracle of healing. Well, how do you know? Well, because he healed me. I was the one that, that this happened with. People saw those miracles and were able to tell others about these miracles that they had witnessed taking place. But here... At the resurrection, the center of our faith, nobody sees it. There is no one present who saw Jesus rise from the dead. All we see are the results of it. A stone rolled away, an empty tomb, abandoned burial wrappings, but not the event itself. We'll see Jesus later on, a little spoiler there, but, but, but we don't actually see the event itself happening. We have no recording of that. All anyone ever has had is evidence of things not seen, as the writer of Hebrews uh, put it in Hebrews 11.1. 1. 
And so that's what we're going to consider as we read this amazing account of the resurrection of Jesus, what characterized this resurrected life we now find in the risen Christ and what is going to be required of us, what, what it means to our lives that Jesus has risen from the dead. So if you're there in Luke chapter 23, we're going to begin with verse 1. It says, but very early, but, you know, it's a transitional thing there. He's talking about the women who were at the tomb who were preparing the spices, but they had to wait uh, because it was Sabbath. So we begin with this. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. So here the finale opens on the the women that we read about last week who were at the cross when Jesus died and they saw where he was buried. They took note of that. And they're they're heading to the tomb early in the morning to do the honorable thing with Jesus' corpse. Remember, the way burial went, I'll just give you a quick refresher on that. The way burial went in those days is that uh, under normal circumstances, a, a body would be covered with spices and different ointments to try to mitigate the smells uh, during decomposition. They would put the body in a carved-out limestone cave area, usually with multiple shelves, where you know families would be put in there together. And they'd put a big stone over the entrance to keep out animals, to keep out robbers. And, and the spices, as I said, were meant to diffuse uh, the smells. Jesus died the day before the Sabbath, so they didn't have time to put all the spices on the body when they wrapped it on Friday. So early Sunday morning, these women are heading to the tomb to finish what they didn't have time to do two days earlier. So let's imagine that for a minute. Imagine, put yourself in their sandals for just a second and think about the task in front of you, what you've got to go do, what, what's, what's awaiting you at, at that tomb. I can imagine this was a difficult and solemn task that they're going to perform. I'm sure that they were hurting. They're maybe moving along just numbly walking down the path. Maybe they're rolling the events of that terrible weekend over and over in their mind as we're prone to do when we've experienced trauma. But you know what they weren't thinking about? They weren't wondering whether Jesus would be there when they showed up. Like, I have never gone to visit the grave of a loved one who's passed away and wondered on my way there, I hope that she's there when I, when I get there. Because, you know, like, rational people don't think like that. That's not what you think. I'm sure they were mourning the fact that they weren't going to be able to, to sit and talk with their rabbi that, like they had for three and a half years. They weren't sad. They were sad, I'm sure, because... Because Jesus wasn't going to be available to them like they had known for all of this time. But when they got to the tomb, they find a whole new concept that they have to try and process. Jesus isn't unavailable to them because his lifeless corpse is somehow locked away uh, behind a stone in a tomb. He's unavailable because the stone has been removed and he is absent. And I love that about the gospel accounts. Each One of the narratives begins with this empty tomb. It's the starting uh, uh, evidence here of something unseen that has taken place, some amazing event that's happened. But we also get the impression that the tomb is empty because, uh, you know, and Jesus isn't present because he's got better things to do than just hang around in a tomb uh, all day. And I love that image as well, that Jesus now has broken loose and he's out somewhere and nobody knows what he's actually up to. It's shocking. It's unthinkable. It's surprising. And it's telling all at once. 
And I think it's our first indication that this new life in Christ isn't confined and static, but it's alive and active. The women can't finish their work on Jesus, not because there's some stone in the way and they can't get to him, but because he's not there. And now the purpose for them being there has fundamentally changed. They went there with one purpose. That purpose has now radically been altered. When they get to the tomb, the main ingredient for their mission, a corpse, is missing. And the women can only see where Jesus was. This is where his body was, but he's not here now. And there's something in this that Luke and and all the gospel writers want us to take hold of because this is a picture of every subsequent generation's experience with this Christian faith. There's something that I think that we struggle with when it comes to our perception of, of Jesus. So often we want Jesus to remain static. We want him stashed away someplace safe, like in a church building or maybe off in heaven somewhere, somewhere predictable so that we can use him when we need him. We, we sort of try to keep Jesus entombed in our sentimental images of him or a, a pleasant picture of what he was up to at some place, but some safely distant place off in history somewhere far away from us, preserved somehow in our doctrinal boxes that we've created for him, some place where we know exactly where he is and exactly what he's doing so that he's at our beck and call whenever we need him or want him. But that is not the Jesus that Luke gives us, nor any of the other Gospels. All of the Gospels present us with a mysterious and elusive Jesus, one who's alive and running wild through the earth. And we suddenly realize, like these women did here, that we're several steps behind him already. Where, where is he? Well, he's not here. Well, what's he up to? Where, where's, he, where's he going? I just think this is an important realization to keep in mind when it comes to the life we live of following, following Jesus. This new life we find in him is unpredictable. Like we said last week, it's an adventure. There's no predictability in all of these things. Jesus isn't setting up shop in a hollowed out tomb somewhere where he can dispense goodies to to the world. He's out in the wide open. He's on the move right now even. And our lives are all about chasing after him, following after him. Where is he? What is he up to? And please understand, I'm using imagery here. Obviously, all of the imagery that the Bible presents us, we have to work together in concert with each other. So, you know, we put it all together. We know that Jesus is with us. He promised us that. He promised us that he and his father would come come dwell in us and we're with him. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Those are promises that he gives us. But this picture here is in all of the gospels. And I believe it reminds us that we still have this grand game of hide and seek going on uh, with God. Positionally, in our justification and our reconciliation with God, we are with Jesus and he is with us. But as our lives unfold, we are ever searching, ever exploring, ever on the lookout for where Jesus is and what he might be doing and what he might be up to. And that, to me, is a summation of the entire book of Acts. 
Jesus raised from the dead. He shows himself to the, the first church. And the rest of the story is about them chasing after Jesus. Where is he? What's he up to? What's he doing now? Let's remember who we're following. We're following the one who left the tomb. This is not a confined, static, closed-in box of a life. This is a wide-open adventure where all kinds of things are, are possible. Jesus is out of that tomb. He's got a head start on us. So let's go. <laughs> let's start looking. Let's keep our eyes open for what he's up to. Okay, the story goes on. Verse 4. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. And the men, then the men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Then they remembered <laughs> that he had said this. Okay, we'll stop there. So there are certain elements that are consistent within all of the gospel accounts about the resurrection. Uh, really, basically three elements. One, the, the tomb is found empty. In every gospel account, there's an empty tomb I- included. The, the second thing is that the discovery happens on Sunday morning uh, each, in each account. It's Sunday morning, they show up, there's an empty tune. And, and the third is that Mary Magdalene is, is present. And he's gonna, Luke will identify her in, in verse 10 when we get to that. But after those three consistencies, <laughs> then each story goes all over the place, uh, as we would expect it to do in the face of such unimaginable and amazing turn of events. Each of the Gospels includes an angelic messenger who's explained what's happened. But Luke is the only one who says that there were two of them at this point. In John's account, Mary sees two angels when she returns to the tomb later on. Also, Luke doesn't use the normal term for angels, but instead he refers to them as men wearing uh, phosphorescent threads. But still the women respond by bowing. They recognize something divine is happening here, something, something beyond the scope of normal activities. And again... This sort of discrepancy is something that actually helps authenticate the story for me. Other people might be distressed over the fact that there are incongruities in this, but I kind of like the, 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 the confusion because the confusing reports is what we always find after big events that are unexpected. Go to any event that happens, and as the news reports, in this information age, as the news reports are coming in, there's all kinds of different details, and everybody's trying to scramble to try to get all the facts straight as they go along. You know, listen, there are ways to go through and harmonize all of these accounts, which is fine. People have done that, and and it's reasonable. Uh, But I, I like the feel of this convolution. Uh, So I'm just going to leave it to you to explore all those different ways in which they might reconcile. The message that the angels present to these women just rings down through the ages as an impetus for our faith. Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? And I always think about these angels. They always come off to me kind of like, receptionists at a really busy business office somewhere like, oh, you're looking for Jesus? I'm sorry. You just missed him. And this isn't, you're in the wrong wing anyway. This was a temporary office he set up, but he's somewhere else. And then they add for emphasis, but he told you he wouldn't stay here way back in the Galilee days. This is one of the best instances of I told you so that I've ever encountered. And we've read all those predictions as we've gone through this gospel account. We've 
We've read all of this. Back in chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus said explicitly that he would be killed and rise from death on the third day. In chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, he said it again. And the narrative specifically states in that instance that it it says the disciples didn't understand any of this, uh, what he was saying. It's got to be metaphor, right? I mean, he's talking metaphor. It's imagery of some kind. I just don't get what in the world he's trying to say with all of this talk. But I think the significance of that, something that maybe we, we brush over too quickly, the significance of that is that this new life in Christ is assured even when we don't understand it. Whether the disciples got it or not when Jesus made those predictions had no bearing on what it is God was going to do. The disciples' ability to comprehend what Jesus was saying about what was going to happen had no bearing on what it was God was already determined he was going to do. And we have to take note of that. It's, it's been hard for me to trace with any sort of real clarity, but for sure, the last 100 years of fundamentalism and then evangelicalism has created a, a subtle shift in our grasp of the Christian faith. In the rise of modernism, which occurred roughly 100 years ago, and its subsequent questioning of anything that couldn't be proven empirically, and the societal quest for rationalism sparked a response from the church, specifically within the fundamental and then later the evangelical church, that, that I'm not convinced was helpful, or I'd even go so far as to say I don't think it was healthy. We've sort of adopted the, the modernist approach to our faith. We're trying to verify the underlying reasonableness of the Bible's claims. And then we set out to establish a level of certainty about our faith, which we don't even recognize are two incongruent terms. That's, you know, not to say that we close reason off or that we, you know, you know, hear what I'm saying. It's, It's not that we close reason off, but this is not a scientific pursuit that we're on here, where we're, we have claims that can be provided with empirical evidence of it. And we've almost reduced the Christian life to a set of propositions that we first need to understand and then accept as truth. And if you will understand and accept these things as truth, well, then you're in the club. And that eliminates a whole element of mystery that we see in all the way through the entire span of the biblical narrative. And it's one that I believe is really important for our Christian lives. You know, April Hess, you met her here this morning. She led a, a, a women's small group uh, a while back, uh, which read the book by Peter Enns, The Sin of Certainty. And she was fielding questions. I actually fielded a few questions uh, about that book. And it's a book that I've read and I, I truly appreciate But the questions were sort of nervously wondering, like, you know, is it okay to relinquish certainty when it comes to God? And honestly, those questions made me ponder. Those questions inspired brand new questions in my mind. Like, why is that? Like, why is that a a, a disturbing thing for us? Because I get it. Why does it make us nervous? I don't know, because it makes me nervous, too, to be honest with you, when I first was looking at these things. I believe it's partly because certainty is the hallmark of a modernist worldview. It's sort of the orthodoxy of an empirical mindset, an empirical age. And it's one that we have gone ahead and accepted. 
as the church. So when someone comes along and suggests that we don't know things for sure, that's why we have faith, we start to get, you know, a little uncomfortable in this whole thing because that is empirically, empirically unorthodox. But it is not biblically unorthodox to not have that kind of certainty. I don't believe the disciples, these women at the tomb, had any sense of certainty about anything in that moment. But God wasn't looking for them to understand or be certain. He was looking to them to believe. I don't believe the, the disciples had any clue what Jesus was talking about when he said he was going to be betrayed and executed and rise on the third day. Jesus never asked them to understand it. He just told them what was going to happen and trusted them to believe it. Listen, if, if God wanted these women at the tomb to understand, then the angels would have pulled out a blackboard and started working through the, in the dynamics of divine reanimation. And this is how this works. God is not asking us to understand all things, to achieve a rational sense of certainty about this life that he's called us to. He's asking us to do what he's always asked the human race to do, and that's step out by faith, trusting that he's at work in our lives and in this world, whether we see it or whether we understand it or not, to step out on evidence of unseen things, which is a contradiction in terms. We, we haven't seen the empty tomb. You and I sitting here in this room today, we haven't seen the empty tomb. We've only heard stories about the empty tomb. Are we willing to embrace the promise of new life moving out into this world when we can say, I don't know for sure that it happened, but I believe. And I see evidences of that new life in my own life. I look at my life and I realize something has occurred here that I have no explanation for. And that's something each of us has to contemplate and wrestle with. And it sort of leads us then into the next section, verse 9. So they, the women, rushed back from the tomb to tell the 11 disciples, because remember Judas is gone, and everyone else, so that's like probably the families and other people that are there with the 11, of what had happened. Verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene, Yohanna, or as we would say it, Joanna, uh, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. And, you know, you may be thinking at this point, boy, you know, the women are featured a lot in this section. Uh, you know, where, where are the men? When, when are they going to come into this story? Where, when are the dudes going to show up? Well, here they are, verse 11. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. Remember... We were talking about a societal perception of women at that time. A woman's testimony, remember, wasn't allowed. And we see that at work here. Verse 12, however, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. And he went home again, wondering what happened. And that's where we're going to stop today. Okay, so we get the names of some of the, the women disciples. Mary Magdala, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James. There's the three that Luke names for us, others that are unnamed. They run back to where the other disciples are hiding. 
So they burst in on the guys who are sitting around forlornly. Some of them are playing Xbox, just trying to kill the pain a little bit. A few of them are gathered around a police scanner to see if the Romans are closing in at this point. And the women excitedly announce that what they've just experienced, and the guys dismiss it out of hand. Oh, you're being hysterical. Uh, you know, obviously you're sad and you've got the vapors or, or something's uh, going on here. But listen, and I know, as I've said before, there was this cultural perception of women, so that's at play in this. But listen, in their defense, the story that these women come back with is bonkers. I mean, you can't totally blame these guys for, you know, having trouble believing it right off the bat. Everybody's going to sit there a little bit. Even if it was a group of women, I think, would have sat there going, eh, maybe you do have the vapors. I don't know. Still, Peter decides to go and investigate this situation himself. And, and he finds the empty tomb, just like they said, And it says he went home wondering what had happened. Now, some scholars say that that word that's used there could be translated as marveled at what happened. And that actually changes it pretty drastically. I will say that those scholars who say that are in the minority. The the majority of scholars believe that it's just him being confused by this situation. But I think the fact that Peter didn't just go back to playing Xbox with the other guys when he heard this, but he jumps up and he goes to investigate for himself provides another important example for us, a a, a deep reminder that this new life in Christ prompts us to be open to all of the possibilities that are found in God. I love the gospel's resurrection accounts because everyone clearly has to be persuaded to this idea. Nobody in any of these accounts just jumps on board and says, oh, this is cool, he rose from the dead. Oh, that's awesome. I thought maybe something like that. But nobody is thinking like that. Some outrightly reject it until Jesus finally shows up and takes him by the shoulders, in essence. Daryl Bach wrote, the resurrection is the central hope to the Christian faith, but the church did not come to believe it easily. <laughs> and that's true. And I like that. I like it that it's that way in that account. And that should give us grace for anyone who's reluctant to believe like we may believe. This isn't an easy thing to swallow. It wasn't easy for the first disciples either. What it took, at least for Peter in Luke's telling of it, was a willingness to be open to the possibilities of God at work in this world. My father-in-law, Chucky, he passed away last April. He and his wife, Ravi's mom, uh, moved to Florida about 10 or 12 years ago. I can't remember exactly when, when it was. When they moved here, they just had no real interest in Christianity. That wasn't their thing. But, you know, to support their daughter, they, they started coming to church here at Eastgate on Sunday mornings. It just so happened that I was going through Luke the first time around uh, back in those days. And, and so they, they came and they sat through the entire study of the book of Luke. And Chucky started having health issues uh, uh, around then. And, and one day I, I had gone to the hospital to visit him and we were just talking. And, and he said, Rob, I really enjoyed that study of, of Luke. And, and he said, I, I like Jesus and I like what he said, but I have trouble with some things like the virgin birth and the resurrection. I, I, you know, I should have mentioned he, he's a, he was a rocket scientist. I mean, you talk about a guy whose life was built around empirical evidence of things. I mean, that's just who he was. And he said, you know, I, I, I think I could be a pretty good Christian if I didn't have to believe in those things. Can I do that? And I said, well, you know, that's going to be between you and God. But, but I, I will say that the resurrection is pretty much, you know, a core belief of Christianity. 
And he kind of looked dejected, like almost a sense of like, yeah, I thought so, you know, I knew it. But I, I said to him, you know, you've, you've said to me before that you believe there's a God. You know, this man of science, but he still said, I, I believe there's a God. I believe there's a creative force behind all of this. Now, he was a lot more abstract in his thinking from his years in AA. But he said, yeah, yeah, I believe there's a God. And I said, so if you start with the premise that there's a God who created everything, who's all-powerful, isn't it possible that such a God could suspend the order of things that he set in order to communicate something or to accomplish something in the hearts and the lives of the human race that he cares about? And he sat quietly for a minute. He goes, sure, yeah. And I said, as far as I can tell, that's all he's asked of us, to believe in the possibilities of what he may be up to, to believe in the possibilities of God. And, you know, Chucky, he just kind of lit up at that idea. And I'll tell you, after mulling that over for a while, he came to me later on, he and, and his wife both, to, to let Robbie and I know that they'd committed their hearts to Jesus, that, that they were believing on this God of these possibilities. The Christian faith, I believe, took its first step there with Peter in a willingness to stretch his credulity and suspend all of his certainties as he set out to discover what God might be up to. He thought that death was the end of everything. But what if God was bigger than that as well? And what if he intends to surprise all of us with a hope beyond our wildest imaginations? With the openness to that, we can begin this process of discovery of what it is that God's up to, of what God may be doing, of looking for those evidences of things not seen. And that's what the resurrection can produce in us, a return to wonder. And I'm telling you, if there's anything lacking in the church more than anything that I can think of, it's that loss of a sense of wonder over all these things. God has provided us a hope beyond what we can comprehend, a life that isn't just contained in a box of propositions to understand, but a life that is active and expansive and always on the lookout for all of the possibilities of God. So let's embrace that life. Let's rejoice in what it is that Christ has done in offering himself as a sacrifice to reconcile us with God, but to not stay in that tomb, but to break out and run wild in this earth to demonstrate that love of God to anyone who'll stop for just a moment and give a chance at wondering and believing in the possibilities. Let's embrace this life He's not in the grave. He is not with the dead of history. He is alive. So let's go catch up with him. Right on? All right, very cool. Why don't you stand with me, please? God, we thank you so much for the truth that's revealed in your word, not a truth that we're going to go out and scientifically, empirically prove, but a truth nonetheless that awakens in our hearts and in our minds the possibilities of your love at work in this world. Father, I just pray for each one of us that's here. Lord, I know so many of us. We we come on a Sunday morning, we gather here, and, and so often our prayers have the marks of the cross on them. 
Our hopes are things sometimes that we've had to bury and see die. But as we look at this story, we realize that even if we've had to do that, the possibilities exist in you that those things could come back, reborn into new life we never, ever dreamed of. I pray, Father, that the hope of that begins to wrap itself around our hearts, dismissing all of the despair and discouragement, bringing light where there was darkness. Because if there's one thing your resurrection speaks to us, it's that nothing is beyond your ability to impact or affect in positive ways. None of us has ever fallen out of your reach. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is revealed in Christ Jesus. Father, inspire our hearts with that hope and lead us into lives that reflect that hope into the world. Because this is the message you've given us. This is a message of life. This is a message of reconciliation that you, as our creator, love us so much You do these amazing things in order to reconcile with us. And we thank you for that, Father. I pray that each one of us receives that, that you've provided for us. Enlarge our minds, enlarge our hearts to be willing to believe. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now the Savior knelt to wash our feet now at His feet we bow
Spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. In your name I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected King. This week, let's head out with the realism. You know, one of the things that, that, that marked the early church was a switch from a day of observance from Saturday to Sunday. The reason that we switched it over to Sunday is because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, which means that every single Sunday is a celebration of Easter, is a celebration and a recognition that Jesus has risen from the dead and that hope is running wild in this earth. And so let's go in that hope through this week and spread that hope around wherever we go. Right on? All right. Well, let's uh, speak this blessing over each other before we bail out of here. May you see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. May the Lord hold you steady and still. 
In Jesus Christ, hold fast from take heart. In his love, there is hope for you. Go in peace, you children of God.